0: Well, when someone becomes a follower of Christ, as you know, it affects every area of their life. They have given up their own agenda, their own purposes and plans for themselves, their own desires and preferences, and they submit everything to the word of God. To use Jesus' own words, we deny ourselves, we take up our cross daily, and we follow him. And this is true in every segment of our lives. We let the Word of God reveal the will of God in every realm, in all of our relationships, in all of our behavior, in all of our, in all of our activities, in all of our church life, in all of our family life, and in all of our work life. When the Apostle Paul and Silas first came to the ancient city of Thessalonica preaching the good news of Jesus Christ, And as God began to call lost sinners to saving faith in Christ, Paul then began to instruct these new converts about the Christian life, about every area of life, how they ought to live in a God-pleasing manner. And so he, of course, taught them about who God is. He taught them about their salvation. He taught them regarding the glorious truths of the gospel that Jesus came and lived and died and was resurrected and ascended back to the Father. He also taught them about the church, how they should function in the church. And he also taught them about the second coming and how Christ would return. He undoubtedly taught them about marriage, how they should relate, husband and wives. He taught them about things like parenting and how we should teach our children. And he also would have, we also know that he taught them extensively about work, is how they are to work. We would have naturally assumed that these new converts to Christianity would have come with their own trades. They would have had their vocations. Some of them certainly would have been masons and carpenters. Some would have been scribes and teachers. Some would have been farmers and shepherds in this community. So Paul did not need to teach them a trade per se. Rather, he taught them God's view of work. He taught them how they ought to work and why they ought to work. And Paul taught them how to work really in a God pleasing manner. And in 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 6, Paul refers to his instruction to them about work as the tradition, the tradition that he passed on, meaning that Paul was passing down to these primarily Gentile converts the very tradition that he had received. Teaching from the Old Testament and teaching from the other apostles and teaching that came to him from Christ personally. Paul was passing those things along to others in the church. Unfortunately, we know that there were some in the church of Thessalonica who were rather resistant to this tradition that Paul was teaching to them about work. They were unwilling for one reason or another to conform their lives to the standard that Paul gave them. Although, although Paul was prevented from having a long-term ministry there in Thessalonica, he had time to repeatedly give them orders concerning their work. He repeatedly instructed them. In fact, we know from 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10, that during Paul's initial founding visit of this church, his founding stay, stay there, he repeatedly needed to instruct them in giving them this principle. He said, if anyone is not willing to work, then he's not to eat either. That was Paul's repeated command to this church. He says, look, no work, no bread. For able bodied adults in the congregation, working to provide for your own food and clothing and pro- provide for your own household, this was not optional. It was the will of God for everyone to work to provide for themselves. Again, if anyone's not willing to work, then he's not to eat either. This much is clear work is not optional. Paul made this clear. But we also think, well, what else would Paul have taught them? What would have been this tradition that Paul passed along to them about work? What was this full teaching tradition that Paul would have imparted to them? Paul certainly did not come up with a new standard for work. Paul simply gave them the very truths that God had revealed long ago. Paul gave them really what we might call a biblical view of work. Today, we live in a society that has many regulations and laws related to work. Think about minimum wage and age requirements, restrictions on how many hours you can work in a week, how many hours you can work in a single day, strictures on how you can manage employees, or how you must manage and relate to employees, how you can let go of employees and fire employees. We live in a a society that even has a vast welfare system, a system that we all know has many loopholes that many are able to circumvent and work around and cheat the system. And so there's no shortage of rules and regulations and laws in our society about work. But what is the biblical tradition regarding work? What's God's law in relation to work? How does God's word address work? And as was necessary in Thessalonica, so it's necessary for us today to have a a grasp of what God requires of us in relation to work. I mean, just think for a moment. For us as adults, we work 40 hours a week. I mean, maybe 50 weeks a year. If we put that together, that's 100,000 hours of work. I mean, imagine in our lifetime that much, many, many hours. I added that up. That's, That's almost 11 years, speaking of an average age of life, 80 years, 11 years just given to work alone, straight years. That's a lot of time for us to give to work. So we need to think about this rightly. Think about it uh, in relation to the scriptures. We need to understand the importance and purpose of work from a biblical perspective. Again, this is what Paul would have invested in this church. And so before we consider the work crisis that was in Thessalonica, I want us to understand God's standard for us in relation to work. And so with this as our goal, we would do well to start from the beginning. And so if you haven't done so already, I'd invite you to open up your Bible or the Pew Bible there in front of you, and please turn with me to the very opening book of our Bibles, the book of Genesis. And please turn to Genesis chapter 2. This morning, as a bit of an extended introduction, I just want to, I want us to review God's will for us pertaining to work. And although it it certainly cannot be exhaustive this morning, I would just like us to to give a survey of perhaps what I'm calling biblical patterns and principles relating to work. I'm going to give several of them this morning. Biblical patterns and principles relating to work. And God's first word on work is found clear back in the garden. Prior to the creation of Eve, God gave Adam a mandate to work in Genesis 2.15. Look look at that verse with me, Genesis 2.15. It says, then then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. To cultivate and to keep the garden. Later, God would tell both Adam and Eve to rule and subdue the earth. But Adam was the one first tasked with cultivating and keeping the garden. Initially, it seems that this was a service of great joy for Adam, a privilege for him. He was serving the creator by carefully carrying out this command to cultivate and keep the garden. So we might state this in in the form of a principle as this. God created us to work. It was a part of his original design for us. God created us to work. Work and physical exertion was a part of God's good design for us. But when sin entered the world, of course, this changed. As a result of man and woman's rebellion, God cursed the ground. And look what Yahweh said to Adam in chapter 3, verse 17. Look beginning there, chapter 3, verse 17. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and you have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life, Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. Verse 19, By the sweat of your face you will eat bread, till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Adam's responsibility to work, or to cultivate the earth, would continue, but now... God says, it's going to be difficult for you. It's going to be labor, laborsome for you. Sin and the curse distorted work. Of course, death and decay now entered the world. Work would be what man would do to occupy his time lived upon the earth before death returned him to the soil from which he came. And by the sweat of his brow... They would labor for bread, the text says. You will work for bread. Simply put, the principle here is that after the fall, work for bread is toilsome. Work for bread is is hard. It's difficult. If we fast forward now in history and in biblical revelation, God gives us another pattern for work. In multiple places and for multiple reasons, God commands that work is to be done on six of the seven days of the week. Uh, To see this first, turn with me to Exodus 20. Exodus 20, the second book of the Bible, and and look here at the giving of the Ten Commandments. Our attention is drawn to the fourth commandment in particular, but look at verse 8. Exodus 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath Of the Lord your God in it you shall not do any work you or your son or your daughter your male or female servant or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy so God here designed the final day of the week To be a day holy unto the Lord. In other words, God sanctified the Sabbath. Israel was called to rest on the seventh day. Because on the seventh day, God ceased from all of his creation. In six days, God made the earth. And he ceased from his creative works on the seventh day. But God also knew that man needed a day to rest from his toilsome labor. Return to Exodus 23, just a page to the right there, Exodus 23, and look at verse 12, and see the reason that God gives here for rest. Six days you are to work, but on the seventh day you shall cease from labor, so that your ox and your donkey may rest, and the son of your female slave, as well as your stranger, may refresh themselves. So in multiple other locations in Exodus, we see this repeated, this reiterated command, and we see this need for rest, a desire to take one day off. We see this, for example, in Exodus 34:21. I'll read it to you. You shall work on six days, but on the seventh day you shall rest, even during plowing time and harvest. Exodus 34:21 says so even when the fields desperately called to be worked and to be reaped Israel was to even then prioritize the day of rest rest was to be prioritized and sacrificed for a similar command is found in Leviticus and also in Deuteronomy uh, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 5 with me the fifth book of your Bible Deuteronomy 5 here the 10 commandments are reiterated again and in this giving of the Ten Commandments, it's interesting to note uh, the reason behind the, uh, the uh, Fourth Commandment, or this, this command to take a day of rest. So, Deuteronomy 5, look at verse 12. Observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy, as the Lord God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But on the seventh day it is a Sabbath of the Lord your God, and in it you shall not do any work, you are your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you so that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out of there by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to observe the Sabbath. So Israel's own redemption out of Egypt was to serve as a, an incentive for them to observe the Sabbath. There's really much more that could be said about the Sabbath, especially as we come into the New Testament and consider some of Jesus' words and the New Testament words about the Sabbath. In the, New, in the New Testament, we see the pattern is for the New Testament, rather to cease from labors on the final day of the week, they begin to gather on the first day day of the week. The church gathers on what we call the Lord's day, the day that Christ was resurrected from the grave. That's when the church gathers. But I think that the principle or the pattern that we can draw from God's word related to our work is that work is to be done on six days. And one day ought to be given to rest into spiritual things, whether it's the first day of the week or the last day. Whether we call it the Sabbath or we call it the Lord's Day, work is God is here setting boundaries upon our work. Work in six days and not seven. In other words, God's giving us a limitation on our work. It's interesting, he doesn't say work only five days and take a two-day weekend off. That's what we typically think. We have two days off a week. But the biblical pattern is one day of work, of work off each week. And it's... So then we'd say it seems that God's desire for us is not for us to work seven days a week, but for to have one day, a special day set apart for spiritual things. Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 reminds us to not forsake our collective assembling together, which is, again, always found on Sunday. It's the first day of the week, the Lord's Day. And in many cultures and in many periods of church history, this gathering of the church wasn't limited to a mere hour and 15 minutes the lord's day assembly was a multiple hour gathering and it's that way in many places it's it includes fellowship and observing of the lord's supper the singing of songs congregational hymns collective prayers being offered to the lord it it also seems to include meals coming out of that fellowship meals it was meant for an uh, everything was meant to edify and build up the body of christ the puritans rightly called the lord's day the market day of the soul when, when we were built up and strengthened in the lord and such extended gatherings wouldn't then necessarily preclude one from going to their normal work they were going to church instead to gather so the principle again is this Well, I wouldn't necessarily call it Sabbath for us today. Work is to be done on six days, and one day ought to be given to rest in spiritual things. That seems to be the biblical pattern. Another Old Testament book that reveals much about God's will for us concerning work is the book of Proverbs. Please turn with me to Proverbs chapter 6 proverbs is just full of biblical wisdom related to work and as this week as i looked at various passages and just tried to coalesce it all together i came up with this single biblical principle that i thought was maybe the overarching word about work in the book of proverbs it's this laziness is to be condemned as evil while diligence is to be praised as righteous uh, to see this with me, begin looking at these well known words in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 6. Proverbs 6, verse 6. Go to the ant, O sluggard, O lazy one. Observe her ways and be wise, which, having no chief, officer, or ruler, prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provision in harvest. How long will you lie down, O sluggard? Will you arise from your sleep, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest? Your poverty will come on you like a vagabond, and your need like an armed man. This is interesting language here. And we see some other things coming out of this. Hard work leads to prosperity. Hard work leads to prosperity. Laziness, on the other hand, leads to poverty. We also see that while sleep is a gift, excess sleep is equated with laziness. These themes are repeated again and again in Proverbs, but draw your attention again to verse 9. How long will you lie down, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and your poverty will come on you like a vagabond. That's like a, a deranged stranger. And your need like an armed man. Now now let's look at another proverb. Turn to Proverbs chapter 10 and look at verse 4 with me. Proverbs 10, 4. Poor is he who works with a negligent hand, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Again, diligence leads to prosperity. Look also at verse 5. He who gathers in the summer is a son who acts wisely, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who acts shamefully. Turn now to Proverbs 13. Look at verse 4. Proverbs 13, verse 4. The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, but the soul of the diligent is made fat. The one who works hard, is blessed, is prospers. Look at chapter 15 and look at verse 19. The way, chapter 15, verse 19, the way of the lazy is a hedge of thorns, but the path of the upright is a highway. Notice the contrast in verse 19 between the lazy and the upright. The lazy and the contrasted with the righteous. Uh, this suggests that it's not only wrong to, just, to be lazy, it's also sinful. And it's righteous to be diligent. Look now to chapter 19. Proverbs 19, verse 15. Again, laziness casts into deep sleep, and an idle man will suffer hunger. The idle man who does not work will suffer hunger. Look ahead to Proverbs chapter 21. And look at verses 25 and 26. Proverbs 21, verse 25. But the desire of the sluggard puts him to death, for his hands refuse to work. All day long he's craving, while the righteous gives and does not hold back. And notice again, the sluggard, the lazy one, is contrasted with the righteous. In other words, again, it's sinful to be lazy. We could say God despises laziness. And it's good and righteous for a man to work hard and to be diligent in his work. Look also to Proverbs 24, Proverbs chapter 24, verse 30. This is an interesting one. I, Proverbs 24, verse 30, "...I passed by the field of a sluggard, and by the vineyard of a man lacking sense. And behold, it was completely overgrown with thistles." Its surface was covered with nettles, and its stone walls broken down. When I saw, I reflected upon it. I looked, and I received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Then your poverty will come as a robber, and your wants like an armed man. Notice these final two verses here repeat the verses we saw from verse 6. Excess sleep is equated with laziness. And laziness leads to poverty. But again, consider the overgrown and neglected field of the sluggard, or vineyard, in verse 30. It's overgrown with thistles. It's an indicator here that this man lacks sense, the text says. He lacks sense. Although not many of us, I suppose, have vineyards today, I often think of this truth in relation to the state of my garage. I I think of littered balls and bikes and half-completed projects and just cl- cluttered and dis- disorganized workbench. Now I think of this principle also in relation to my desk in my office. Is it, is it tidy? Is it unkept? Does it reflect diligence or laziness? Well, I think of also of maybe not keeping my vineyard, but keeping my lawn. I recognize one can be overzealous in their pursuit of killing weeds, but there seems to be something right and good about having a, a, a good-looking yard. I find it interesting and also convicting. Of course, it, this all comes from hard work and diligence. Hard work and diligence. And Proverbs says, again, diligence is to be praised. A final proverb to consider. Look at Proverbs 26, verses 13 and 14. Proverbs 26, verse 13 and 14. The sluggard says, there's a lion in the road, and a lion in the open square. And as the door turns on its hinges, so does the sluggard on his bed. You know Psalm one twenty seven which we read this morning, tells us that sleep is a gift from the Lord, but this proverb tells us that it's righteous and, and good to wake up early and, and get out of bed. I mean I think of this principle: think of this tomorrow when your alarm clock goes off. Don't despise your alarm clock. Let it remind you that it's righteous and good to get out of bed, to not be a, a glutton in terms of sleep don't make also, don't make excuses about why you should remain in bed. Don't pretend that there's some fearful beast out in the streets that's keeping you from getting out of bed. You, you get your sleep and you get up, is what the wisdom of Proverbs says. And, of course, I know there's, we're all different here. Some require more sleep than others. I get that. People are, are different. But I also. But, but this is... This tells us we should not be turning about in our bed like, a, like the hinge of a door. We should get up. And if that you find that being you, then Proverbs says, Go to the ant, you sluggard. Look at him. Observe her ways. I find verse 16 here also to be incredibly revealing. Look at verse 16. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can give a discreet answer. Note, there's a connection between laziness and pride. Very fascinating. The sluggard sees himself as wise in his own eyes, and therefore maybe he doesn't need to work like others. So laziness and pride go together, and then so does humility and hard work. There's something about hard work that humbles a man. Certainly this isn't always the case, but, but doesn't it ring true for you that probably some of the most hard-working people you know are also some of the most humble or the humblest so just recapping what we see here in Proverbs again reminding ourselves of the biblical tradition about work laziness is to be condemned as evil while diligence is to be praised as righteous and then there's other sub-principles we've seen hard work leads to prosperity laziness leads to poverty and while sleep is a gift excess sleep is equated with laziness and then finally, laziness and pride go together. These are principles about life and about work that God has revealed to us. These are righteous standards that we are to live by and work by. As we come into the New Testament, we find a couple other principles given to us about work. One could be summarized as, All work is to be done to glorify God. You know 1 Corinthians 10.31 whether then you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Colossians three says something similar, verses twenty-three and twenty-four, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord, rather than for men, knowing that the Lord, that from the Lord you will receive the reward of inheritance. It is the Lord whom you serve, and all of our working we're ultimately serving God, and all of our labors we're ultimately serving Christ. As the carpenter pounds nails, he pounds them for the glory of God. As the businessman plans a a business agenda meeting in his his own office, as he prepares that agenda, he, he can know that he's striving for the Lord's glory and to be pleasing to Christ. So whatever the vocation we may find ourselves in, it can all be done for the glory of God. Another principle concerning work is found in 1 Timothy 5 please turn there with me to over in the New Testament, 1 Timothy 5, past 1 and 2 Thessalonians and into 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 5. The principle is this, work must be done to provide for one's own family. We are called to work so as to provide for our dependents. See this with me beginning in, in verse 3 of chapter 5. Verse 3, do Verse 3, honor widows who are widows indeed. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, they must learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents. For this is acceptable in the sight of God. This says that children are to care for their widows. They're to care for their aging parents. Parents are to see a very real return on investment from their children and the text says this is pleasing in God's sight it's acceptable to God look also ahead to verse 8 1 Timothy 5 8 but if anyone does not provide for his own and especially of those of his own household he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever amazingly here Paul equates failing to provide your for your family he equates it with apostasy defecting from the faith he is worse than a pagan, Paul says. This means that adults are to provide for their own children, of course. Uh, we might say even that within the marriage that a husband is to provide for his wife. Uh, they're to prov- also, we're to provide for our aging parents. And perhaps even other extended family members have suggested we must all work then to provide for our own family members. And although in verse 8 the pronouns are masculine... I do believe this verse applies to both men and women. However, the scriptures inform us that this mandatory provision for our own families looks differently for men and women. The biblical pattern is for men to work outside the home, and the biblical pattern for women is to work inside the home. We see this right here in 1 Timothy 5. Look at verse 14. He says this, therefore, I want younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house, and give the enemy no occasion for reproach. The responsibility of married women is to be keepers of the home. This is found also in Titus. Turn two books to the right. Well-known passage, Titus chapter 2, and look in, beginning in verse 3, Titus 2, 3. Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, not a slave to wine, teaching what is good so that they may encourage the younger women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands so that the word of God may not be dishonored. Again, the pattern that we see here clearly is that women are to be workers in the home. And this pattern was clear way back in the very beginning. It's interesting to note that the woman was made to be the helper of the man in Genesis 2.18. And even when God cursed the earth, man's sentence was different than the woman's. Man was sentenced to toilsome labor, but the curse of the woman was a curse in childbearing. The, The curse affected men and women differently Men are to work in the field, and women work in the home. You say, does this mean then that women are forbidden from working outside the home? I would not say so, but I think this, we can answer this question uh, in many different ways. But I think we find a lot of wisdom if we turn again to the book of Proverbs. Uh, turn to Proverbs. You know where I'm going. Proverbs 31. Proverbs 31. As you know, Proverbs gives us a picture of the excellent wife, it says, a model of godly virtue, a paradigm that we should consider in every every age. And let's just read this passage in its entirety. Proverbs 31, beginning in verse 10. Look at the model of a godly woman or a godly wife, we might say. Verse 10, an excellent wife who can find, for her worth is far above jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her and he will have no lack of gain. The husband is blessed by his wife. Verse 12, she does him good and not evil all the days of her life. She looks for wool and flax and works with her hands in delight. Working with her hands. She's like, a, she's like merchant ships. She brings her food from afar. I think of this grocery shopping, going to Costco, gathering groceries like a merchant ship. She rises also while it's still night. Look at that. She gets up early while it's still dark. She gives food to her household and her portions to her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. From her earnings, she plants a vineyard. She's industrial. She girds herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She senses that her gain is good and her lamp does does not go out at night. She's even up late working. She stretches out her hands to the distaff, and her hands grasp the spindle. That's reference to making clothing. She extends her hand to the poor. She stretches out her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of the snow for her household, for all her household are clothed with scarlet. She makes coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them. She supplies belts to the tradesmen. She's working, she's providing, outside the home, selling things. Strength and dignity are are her clothing. She smiles at the future. She opens her mouth in wisdom, and the teachings of kindness is on her tongue. She she knows God's word. She opens up in wisdom. She 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 looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and bless her, her husband also. He praises her, saying, Many daughters have done nobly, but you excel them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she will be praised. Give her the product of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. This is amazing. This is an amazing portion of Scripture. Here again, we find that this this paradigm of a godly woman. Work is to be done in the home by the woman as well. We are, again, all called to work. Just work looks differently for men and women. This indeed is a rich portion of Scripture. Again, this is God's design. We live in a broken, fallen world where sin just mars and mangles this all the time. But this is the pattern. This is God's desire for us. But look again at verse 27. It says she looks well, she looks well to the ways of her household and she does not eat the bread of idleness. That's an important verse. And it sounds a lot like 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. So just to review here, just a couple things we've seen. God created man to work. After the fall, work is toilsome. Work has limitations given by God six days and not seven laziness is to be condemned hard work diligence is to be praised work is to be done for God's glory and work is to be done to provide for one's own family well this is not exhaustive again this is a summary of the biblical tradition regarding work we might say this is the Christian work ethic and this was the tradition that Paul sought to establish within the Thessalonians So let us now return to the book we've been studying, 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians. But as you turn there, stop in 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where Paul, recall that Paul needed to repeatedly remind the Thessalonians about their duty to work. He did so in person, and he did so in both of his letters. Look at chapter 4, verse 9. Chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians, verse 9. He says, Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it towards all the brethren who are in Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. And look how verse 11 continues. And to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend your own business and work with your own hands just as we commanded you. So that you will not behave so that you will behave properly towards outsiders and and not be in any need. So love for others inside the church is demonstrated by diligent work. Working with your own hands rather than living off of the benevolence of others in the church. And as you know, this problem didn't go away. In Thessalonica, therefore, for a third time, Paul needed to address it again in a second letter. So turn there, Second Thessalonians chapter three. And look at verse look with me beginning in verse six. Verses six through 15. Address this problem. Look at it there. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life, not according to the tradition which you receive from us. If anyone is not willing to work, then he's not to eat either. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to to work in a quiet fashion and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame, yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. So in the time that remains this morning, I just want to draw our attention to verse 6. In verse 6, Paul is not addressing those who refuse to work. No, no he's addressing the church as a whole, and he's instructing them as to how they ought to relate to those who refuse to work and stubbornly refuse to work. And so here is how Paul ordered the church to confront this persistent problem in the church. And I'd like us to consider verse 6 in three parts and working backwards through the verse. First, I'd like us to see the tradition to receive, then the reason, or the, excuse me, the response to take And finally, the reason to obey. So the tradition to receive, the response to take, and the reason to obey. So on that first point, the tradition to receive. Look again at verse 6 with me. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition you received from us. This tradition that Paul is referencing here is, is really what we've already seen this morning. It's the biblical tradition related to work. It's what Paul and Silas and Timothy repeatedly taught the church and also modeled to this church. In verse 10, Paul echoes a part of this tradition by giving them the command that if anyone's not willing to work, they shall not eat either. Again, no work, no work, no food. And so that was Paul's rule. That was his his admonition, very biblical and Very true to the rest of the scriptures. So we are all called to work. Even as children. Children are called to work. Doing dishes, carrying out household chores, mowing the lawn, shoveling the driveway. God expects all to work. We all work. This is the tradition we all receive. And this brings us then quickly to uh, the response to take. The response to take Paul writes again in verse 6, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life. The context here makes clear what this term unruly life refers to. It refers to those who are refusing to work and who have also been exhorted to work but still defiantly refuse to work. So they are both idle and they are rebellious. One commentator prefers the description for these as rebellious idlers in the church, rebellious idlers. They're unruly. He describes them with these words, those those who were not merely lazy, but who compounded their sin by rebelliously refusing to obey the command of both their congregational leaders and even Paul himself. End quote. So so these are people who were not just lazy. They were lazy and also irresponsible and and defiant. And Paul instructs the church to keep away from them. The term here can mean avoid them, to stand aloof from them, withdraw from them. In essence, it's a command to not be seen with them. And presumably the reason is because as professing believers... They were bringing reproach upon Christ and upon the church as a collective. Therefore, Paul encouraged them to socially withdraw from them. Does this mean that we should corporately call out and withdraw from every person that seems to be lingering a little long between jobs? No. We must be careful to recall that these people have been admonished repeatedly, numerous times before. And so they were defiantly choosing to not work. They had been admonished multiple times, and this is how Paul now told them to treat them. Therefore, Paul calls them to respond by withdrawing. And the effectiveness of Paul's strategy here might be easily missed by us who live in such a highly individualistic age in society. Unfortunately, as a church family, we can be rather disconnected throughout the week. After we leave here on Sundays, we go our different ways and we largely aren't seen together. Again, I hope that throughout the week we're seeking out fellowship times, um, coffee meetings, sharing meals in our homes, things like that, Bible studies where we can be together. That's the way it should be. But even with that, it, it it still just feels like we live independent lives at times. We lack the interdependence that would have been true in this early society that was Thessalonica. Believers in Thessalonica, by contrast with our society, would have lived in a really a strongly communal culture. And when these people left behind their former lifestyles of pagan worship and temple sacrifices, they were often cut off from their their own families and their own social network. And this social network was then replaced by the body of Christ. That was their community. So to have the church Family withdraw from them would have been a rude awakening. It would have been difficult for them. One commentator here writes, the separation of the disorderly believer from the new family of the church would have been devastating. It's hard to imagine a more forceful way of bringing these people into harmony with the apostolic, condition, apostolic teaching, end quote. So this is how severely Paul called them to now treat these people who were refusing to work, withdraw from them. And this brings a question to my mind. Would this this keeping away from mean that they were also excluded from the gathering of the church on the Lord's Day? When when the church gathered, where they said, do do not come, keep keep away from us? Were they no longer allowed to join the Lord's Supper? Or was it merely just a social withdrawal? from the rest of the week, Monday through Saturday, being withdrawing from them. I think the best answer here is to say we simply don't know. Paul doesn't give us all the details I wish that he did here. But I lean towards seeing this as a form of Matthew 18, step three, where the whole church is made aware of this defiant sin, and then steps are taken to call this brother to repentance. It's a warning. It's an admonishment. It's not yet a full removal. It's not yet Matthew, 8, Matthew 18, step four. It's not excommunication. It's not when Jesus says, consider them as a Gentile and a tax collector. I think if there's no repentance, then that final step will come, and we see that in verse 14. In, the, in verse 14, we see a marking and disassociating now, I believe that's Matthew 18, step four. That is if these rebellious idlers fail to heed Paul's warning here in this letter. But for now, now what they're called to do is withdraw from them socially. I think that's the idea. Withdraw from them socially. Don't invite them into your house. Keep away from them in the market. Just don't let them be seen with you. Withdraw from them. I think that... This is the response that Paul wants them to take. So yes, I think they would still have come to the gathering, but throughout the week, no, we're going to keep back from you. That's how he, Paul was calling them to relate to this sinful brother who was refusing to change. This, this, so this is the response to take. And now we ask, we should ask, well, why? Why should we do this, Paul? Why do you want us to treat this brother or this sister this way? Why, why so severe? Why so extreme, Paul? But why should we obey this directive? And I think this brings us finally to the reason to obey. Look again at verse six. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition you receive from us. So this is, the reason to obey is really simple. It's just bound up in these words from Paul. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, through the authority invested in him as an apostle of Jesus Christ, was standing in the very place of Christ, in the authority of Christ, calling the church to action. And the church, upon hearing this command, was to submit, to bring their life under it. They were falling under their orders in the Lord Jesus Christ, doing what he called them to do. And this then brings us full circle as to what it means to be a christian a christian is someone who surrenders all of their life to christ's will for them again luke 9 23 jesus was saying to them all if anyone wishes to come after me he must deny himself take up his cross daily and follow me whoever wishes to save his life will lose it and the one who loses his life for my sake is the one who will save it for what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and that loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the son of man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and his holy angels. That's what just a call to follow Christ. When we follow Christ, that changes everything about us. It, it changes the way we live. It changes the way we work. It changes the way we think about work. It also changes the way we relate to one another in the church. I suppose this message regarding work, there really contains a lot here that might offend someone. It could be offensive in our culture today. One could be offended by Proverbs warning about laziness or too much sleep. One could be offended about the mandates to provide for one's own family. One could be offended by the biblical pattern for men to work outside the home and for women to work inside the home or one could be offended by the principle of those who should not who do not work shall not eat and I suppose that there were some who were offended by this biblical tradition when Paul gave it in there in Thessalonica we should not be surprised when the Lord of God when the word of God offends us convicts us points out areas of sin in our life When we are offended by God's word, rather than rebelling against it, we ought to submit and surrender to it. And that's what Paul was trying to get this church to do in Thessalonica. And may that be our response to this tradition that we see in God's word. May we humbly surrender to God's word. Let's pray towards that end together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word of God. It's We thank you that you did not leave us without a word from you, that you have revealed yourself clearly to us in your all-sufficient word. We thank you for the inspired, inerrant word of God that tells us how we ought to live and think and be and work. So we thank you for giving us directives and explaining how we are to be. Uh, We pray, Lord, that we would take these truths that we've been reflecting on and they would be true of us, Lord, for those of us who are in Christ this morning, would we see this patter, these patterns in Scripture and we seek to bring our lives uh, under it in, in the way that it applies to us, in the ways that we can, recognizing that we live in a sinful world with all sorts of distortions, but help us to strive after this biblical pattern in, in our lives, in our children's lives, in our grandchildren's lives. Would this be true of us? And would we see the, the blessing that comes from hard work and diligence. And would we also recognize that even as we strive in all these ways, that's ultimately only through the power of the Holy Spirit that we're able to do these things. And Lord, I also pray for any here who are confronted and offended uh, by this command in Scripture or these commands. And particularly, just for those of us who are in Christ who want to obey, I just pray you bring these things into our heart. Help us to obey and heed them But I also pray for those who are outside of Christ, who do not know Christ, and who are just offended and angered by this pattern, angered by the commands of Christ, who reject them, who who don't like them. I pray, Lord, that you would convict them of their sin, that you would humble them before you, and you would break them of their rebellion, and that they would come to the Lord Jesus Christ saying, God, just tell me how to live, and I'll live, because you are my king, you're my savior. I pray you'd save them, God. Lord, I pray that sinners would come to saving faith in Christ through the clear message contained in your word. Use your word to draw sinners to yourself. And we pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen.